I love movies. Uh, I love going to see all sorts of movies, but I especially like those thrillers where you know, the, the uh, hero overcomes all sorts of odds to defeat the villains and save the weak and helpless uh, to win out in the end. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's yeah, Bruce Willis in Die Hard doing overcoming incredible injuries to, to win out, or Arnold Schwarzenegger finally getting the better of the evil Terminator, or uh, countless, one of the countless James Bonds, James Bond... Uh, One's overcoming whichever evil enemy of the, of the world uh, it is this year. I love to see justice done and the helpless saved. But of course, they're all fictional characters, aren't they? They're, they're not real, no more than Superman or Batman, who do the same sort of stuff. But then they're also the stuff of myth and legend, the sort of stories that have been told from time immemorial about... Uh, um, about great heroes, often stories based on real events, uh, real people in the time before history was written down. Well, today we're going to be thinking about one of the real histories, real uh, heroes of history, a man who was Arnie and Bruce and Bond put together. Samson was a real person born around the 12th century BC, but endowed with supernatural strength by God. God had chosen him to save his people from their oppressors, the Philistines. <clears throat> the sign that he's chosen by God for this special task is that he's to be a Nazarite. Now, a Nazarite was uh, someone who uh, was set apart by God, and <clears throat> he was not to drink wine or strong drink. Uh, he, he was to eat nothing unclean. And we'll see what that entails later. Uh, and he wasn't allowed to cut his hair. And as a result of God's special calling, he grows up to be the strongest man in the universe. Unlike Gideon, who we looked at last week, he doesn't need to be encouraged to stand up against his enemies. Uh, He he doesn't need to call out the tribes of Israel to fight the Philistines, because he's a one-man army. All he needs is the jawbone of a donkey, and, and he can kill an army, any army that stands against him. And yet as we read through this story, we discover that he isn't entirely the man of steel that we thought he was. Far from being a a he-man, he's really just an ordinary human. In fact, he could could be uh, one of the the heroes of modern literature. You know, those flawed specimens of a man who never quite lives up to his potential until the final faithful act of heroism that takes his life. Well, here in this story, uh, we discover something universal about the human condition. In in fact, we discover three things that Christians today would well do to take to heart. The first thing is that the best start in life can be wasted. I mean, how often do you hear people blaming their failures on their upbringing or their lack of opportunity as a child? How often are parents blamed for the poor decisions their children make? Well, Samson could never have done that. Samson would never have been on the government's list of endangered children. Now he gets about as good a start as you could hope for. God chooses him before he's born. God appears to his parents in the form of an angel to tell them how to raise him. His whole life they raise him as someone set aside to serve God. His training is that of a holy man, not not unlike that of a priest. And he's gifted with extraordinary strength, strength that's to be used to defeat the enemies of Israel. 
And he knows it because he feels God's Holy Spirit beginning to work in him. Well, as the story progresses, we see examples of his exploits. He kills a lion with his bare hands. He kills 30 men in Ashkelon. He kills a thousand men in Lehi. Ropes can't hold him, but then disaster hits. He gives away the secret of his strength and he's defeated. You can imagine his mother and father watching his exploits and tearing their hair out as he goes from one bad decision to the next. I mean, they must have wondered what they'd done wrong, mustn't they? Or sometimes children bring disaster on themselves, despite all the best efforts of their parents. And that's certainly the case here with Samson. I mean, he couldn't have had a better start in life, could he? God's blessing, the gift of superhuman strength, an awareness that he was the one God had chosen to save his people. And yet he ends up in a prison, blinded and shackled, doing the humiliating task of grinding corn, the task normally given to oxen or a mule. So you can see the important lesson for us to learn from history, can't you? Most of us here today are privileged to some extent. For some it's by education, for others it's by wealth, others by birth into the right family perhaps. And even without any of those, all of us are privileged simply by the fact that we live in the country we live in. We're a very privileged group, aren't we? And of course, many of us are talented in some area of life. Perhaps you're an athlete or a musician or a writer or a thinker. Perhaps you're good with, your, with numbers or good at drawing or good at working with your hands. Perhaps you have natural leadership gifts. But whatever it is we possess, it can all be thrown away in a moment if we succumb to moral weakness, the way Samson does. You see, the second lesson we learn from Samson is the peril of an undisciplined sexual appetite. If you wanted to summarise Samson's character, the word might come, that might come to mind is immature. The way he behaves is often frivolous, like when he makes an idle bet with the young Philistine men at, his, men at his wedding feast. He's vindictive, like when the Philistines trick him out of his prize. He kills 30 of their countrymen uh, and to, in order to get the, the clothes that, that he had to pay. When his father-in-law gives his bride away, he sets 300 foxes alike, as we heard, burns down the Philistine crops and vineyards and olive groves. And most seriously, his sexual appetite seems to be insatiable. If he were around today, he'd fit beautifully into that hedonistic culture we see all around us, where everything is aimed at pleasing the senses. And as a result, we see a string of sexual encounters played out as... uh, paid out out for us in a way that would make someone gasp. How can he do that over and over again? Take, for instance, an encounter he had with a prostitute in Gaza. He spends half the night with her and then in the middle of the night he gets up, tears out the gateposts of the town and leaves them on the top of a hill. It's like one of those undergraduate pranks that you hear about or perhaps you, you took part in one day, once upon a time. Only it's much worse than that, isn't it? And then there's the woman he seeks to marry in Timnah, a Philistine, therefore not acceptable as a wife for an Israelite. 
But does that stop him? No. He returns to his, his parents and he demands they get her as a wife. Now his parents know this is wrong. They, they counsel him to look among the Hebrew women for a wife. But Samson likes what he's seen and he wants it. And his parents give in. Now the editor gives us a small editorial point at this, at this, at this point. He assures us that God is in control. Although Samson is acting sinfully and seeking to marry a Philistine woman, God is actually planning to use his foolishness to punish the Philistines. <coughs> but that doesn't take away from Samson's willfulness, does it, in ignoring his parents' advice, in ignoring God's law. So when the wedding feast starts, he's given 30 men to accompany him uh, as with the tradition at the, at the time. He plays a childish game in order to avoid paying for, for, what, was, for, for what was probably the expected gift to his compa- companions. He asks them a riddle that isn't really a riddle. I mean, no one could ever guess it unless they'd, they'd seen what he's just seen. It's a bit like one of those insult ki- jokes your kids might play on you or your grandkids. How do you keep an idiot waiting? I'll tell you later. You got that, did you? Good. <coughs> then when they, they, when they managed to use... Uh, <coughs> sorry. It, it isn't just an innocent insult that he plays, though, is it? It's an act of utter rudeness, trying to avoid the social responsibility of the bridegroom for whom a feast has been prepared by the community. And then they managed to use his wife to wheedle the answer out of him, the first of such... Uh, uh, examples does he accept with good grace laugh it off have a you know congratulate them for outwitting him no now in a fit of churlish anger he goes down to the city of Ashkelon kills 30 of the men and strips of, of their clothes which he then gives to the companions he's a charming chap isn't he now we mustn't think that because God uses his anger to attack the Philistine that makes it all right though it doesn't had he acted righteously in the first instance, in, in fact, if, if he'd acted righteously throughout his life, who knows what he might have achieved. But still God continues to use him. After he sent the burning foxes through their fields, the Philistine, Philistines burned the woman he was meant to marry, along with it, her father. And in retaliation, we didn't read this bit, Samson picks up the famous jawbone of an ass and proceeds to give a, kill a thousand men single-handed. Again, we see the great hero overcoming the enemies of his people, but clearly for the wrong reason. But then along comes Delilah. You could almost have predicted that this would happen, couldn't you? His sexual appetite is unsated. He obviously has a thing for Philistine women for some reason. Perhaps it's that they're the forbidden fruit. So the day comes when he falls in love with a woman, a Philistine woman named Delilah. Naturally, the Philistines see their chance. They go to Delilah and offer her a fortune if she'll just find out what gives him his superhuman strength. And here's where we discover just how stupid Samson has become. Or perhaps how blinded by love he is. She tries four times to get him to tell her his secret. Each time, the Philistines come and try and bind him up and he escapes, breaks the ropes, 
change, whatever it is they try to tie him up with. But eventually she wears him down. She uses all her feminine wiles on him, wheedles him, nags him, pleads with him, she accuses him of not really loving him. All the stuff you see in you know, movies, isn't it? And eventually he gives in. They, they come and shave his head, and as he knew what happened, his strength disappears. Now there's nothing, magic, nothing magical about his hair. It's, it's merely symbolic of his obedience to God. And in a sense, this is the last straw. He's already been disobedient in his indulgent lifestyle and the fact that he handles dead bodies, something that was forbidden to, to Nazarites, even eating honey from the carcass of a lion. And of course, in marrying a Philistine, twice. But now this is the last straw. If he can't keep this secret when he knows she's going to betray him, then God will take away the strength he relies on so much. And with poetic irony, the first thing they do is poke out his eyes. Those eyes that had got him into so much trouble. If only he'd been able to control where his eyes rested, maybe things might have been different. Do you remember Jesus said, I I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart? Now we live in an age when we're encouraged to look with lust. When people determine their self-worth on the sexual encounters they have or their attractiveness to the opposite sex. When people dress to look sexy. When our assessment of others is tainted by a media that puts forward certain physical ideals for us to measure up against. When people pay exorbitant amounts of money to plastic surgeons to reshape their bodies to match a stereotype. That's why this story of Samson is such an important one for us today. Undisciplined sexual appetites will, in the end, bring us to ruin. But this isn't quite the end. As the story draws to a conclusion, we read these words. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Samson had blown it, hadn't he? All that early promise down the tube, all for the sake of a hot woman. But then we realise that failure need not be the end to everything because our failures are not God's failures. Remember when I mentioned the result of that wedding feast, I mentioned the editor explains that what's happening here is part of God's plan. God's so gracious to us, isn't he? He knows that we're fallen human beings. He knows that even the great of us is flawed in some fundamental way. But he chooses to use us despite our failings. This is a repeating message in in Judges, along with the rest of the the Old Testament, the rest of the Bible. In fact, if you look through the list of great men and women of the Bible, virtually none of them were without failings, were they? And yet God chooses to use us, provided we allow him. Well, listen to what happens at the end of the story. Chapter 16, verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, Lord God, remember me and strengthen me only this once, O God, so that with this one act of revenge I may pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. 
Samson remembers who he is at last. Perhaps his experience has been enough to give him the humility he needs to finally call on God for help. And so he prays that God would strengthen him just one more time so he can finally fulfil something of God's plans for him. My dear, there's still that vengeful spirit, isn't there? He's still the real Samson, the flawed Samson. But now his speech is directed to God in humility, acknowledging that his strength comes from God and God alone. And as a result, he achieves the greatest victory of his life. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 of God's empowering presence, even when we feel at our weakness. He says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You know, of all the heroic figures in the Bible, the only one without flaws was Jesus Christ. And here's the good news. His power and righteousness are given to us as gifts to be taken up by us, to take away our failings, to fill in the gaps in in our ability to please God, to help us keep going in our service of God. Failure is a given. Weakness is a given, but neither of them are reasons for giving up. Neither are reasons for not trying in the first place. What they are, in fact, are reasons for working hard at godliness, working hard not to lose the advantage that we start with, reasons for constantly calling on God for the power and enabling that he provides, reasons for asking God to fill us with his Holy Spirit, so we can please him in everything we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look at someone like Samson and we just, well, both are amazed and saddened by how such potential could be wasted. And yet we're encouraged by the fact that in the end you prevailed, that you did use him to bring a great victory. Lord, we pray that you'd be with us in our weakness, with all our failings. Help us to rely on you. Give us your Holy Spirit to lead us. Help us to be faithful in all we do so that we can use what strength we have, empowered by you, to bring great victories for the gospel. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.